The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Welcome to They Must Be Destroyed on Site, episode 89, uh, 98. Holy fuck. <laughs> I totally you almost forgot. that drunk was... already, Lee? I've, okay, let, let's just say I've I've tried to keep our guests more comfortable. Let's just say he drank three beers in the last 30 minutes waiting for a certain somebody. Yeah, no, it also, <laughs> also I, I, I tried to make our guests more comfortable by letting him know right now that I drank six Core's banquet beforehand, so I'm much like one of his co-hosts on his podcast. And it's really that's just an excuse because I'm pretty comfortable anyway. I've been doing this a while, so but I appreciate that Why, very much. Hey, you drink even one Core's banquet is the question I'm asking. <laughs> I mean, because I know, good... I know, there's basically nothing available in Canada, but surely there's. Something... I think, I think he pulled that out of his hat because uh, I'm a stickler for cheap beer and I hate it. <sighs> it's a good beer. I'm not saying it. It's not saying it's bad. I'm just it's cheap. Come on. It's a good beer. Anyway, uh, they must be destroyed on site. Episode ninety-eight. We're getting very close to episode one hundred, and we're continuing our massive saga on crime films right now. And we're going to be talking about Zodiac. I am your host, Lee Russell, and I am joined by my co-host Daniel Animal Crackers Harper. How are you doing, sir? <laughs> I'm doing well, but not wearing a bow tie, unfortunately. And by the way, I, I totally missed uh, the joke from my name. I'm Lee Arthur Allen Russell, by the way. Oh. Just... <laughs> I get that. And... I get that. Yeah, I like it. Well done. And and we are joined by the esteemed Major Domo Svengali, mastermind ringleader of the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts podcast. Mike, I'm not saying my dad was the Zodiac, you but he probably joke. was the Zodiac. He probably person. was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, here, look, I asked that you guys cover this, and then I said, I want to be on your show. I'm just, I'm forcing my way into this already tight studio. Daniel and I are allowing submissive kind of things. Well, I think we'll just talk about the movie tonight. How's that sound? And That's... yeah, you know, my dad, here, here's the thing former Navy guy, all right? Mm-hmm. Aircraft mechanic. Yes, he did wear wing walkers because he was on the wings of mini aircraft fixing them about 185 pounds it looks an awful lot like the sketch i posted that up in your group yeah we lived in the bay area you know i'm, I'm born in 61 so i'm a little bit older but 68 rolls around 69 rolls around and all of a sudden there's this killer and he's talking to the san francisco chronicle and all of a sudden for the first time ever we're locking our doors mm-hmm. i'm born and raised in san jose so i'm about 40 miles south of the city but nobody knew who this guy was. Nobody knew where he lived. He could have lived down in Gilroy a little further south. He could have lived up in Sacramento a little bit further north. Nobody knew anything about this guy other than he was killing and then going to the press about those kills. So a few weeks ago, I'm at my mom's house, right? And I'm, I'm looking through some she, – she wants me to find something that dad owned years ago. And 
I come across his watch collection. Not this is all true, you guys. I'm not I'm not making this shit up. I come across his watch collection. He, he had a lot of watches, a lot mostly Timexes, but he's got three Zodiac watches. And just coincidentally, like I'm thinking, hmm, this is kind of weird because <laughs> I I've just recently watched the Blu-ray you know, a few weeks before that, and I just got to thinking. This is odd. This is strange. I go to mom. I go, hey, dad owned a gun, right? Because he, he owned a handgun. And uh, she says, yeah. And I go, was well, it in the closet back there? She goes, no, I sold that to your uncle. So I call my uncle. I said, Uncle Ralph, mom sold you a handgun, I don't know, years ago. I'm curious to what it was because I think Paul Stein was killed with a 9 millimeter. Right. And I was wondering, is it, was it a 9 millimeter? And my Uncle Ralph goes, I don't remember buying a gun from your mom. <laughs> So my investigation sort of stopped there. Ah, uh, well. But, and he did. He worked. He was an engineer for Westinghouse. Okay, and Westinghouse had a, a missile launching facility up in San Francisco at Hunter's Point, and he would frequently go into the city and stay the night. Why he stood the night, I don't know, because it's only forty-five minutes away. But you know, it's it just got me to thinking. Maybe Dad was this this is Zodiac killer. What What was he Soul doing suspect. on the Fourth of July, nineteen sixty-nine? I think is the big question. I absolutely cannot confirm that. <laughs> I, I just I can't confirm it. There there wasn't a barbecue that year. Uh, let's let's put it this way: Mike Majot and Darlene Farron probably I'm hoping didn't fall to his silly gunplay or knife <laughs> knife stabbings. I guess that's the, oh, no, no that's, that's the Rock that's Springs. The, that's some, the yeah that's it. the Rock Springs one. So yeah, yeah. that would have been yeah. Well, that was I'd a like, handgun. I'd like to think that yeah yeah right because the Berryessa one was the knife attack. So I'd like to think that. Dad was not the Zodiac killer, and I have not mentioned a thing of this to my mom because she's eighty, and she'd probably croak over dead if I mentioned that I thought <laughs> Dad was a Zodiac killer. Yeah, it's probably best to keep it quiet. <laughs> and I'm, and I've I've since sold two of the three Zodiac watches on eBay. I kept the Sea Wolf because that's the one that Arthur Lee Allen purportedly wore, and I, I did check; he actually owned those watches. So. And I'm having it refurbished. So all his DNA has been wiped clean of him. Well, so we'll never know. Hopefully, uh, Dave Toshi will not listen to this podcast because <laughs> I, mean, I think Dave Toshi's dead, right? No, he's no, still alive. So... Oh, okay. okay. We, we talked about this before you uh, came on, Daniel. He's still alive, and he's still carrying a fucking upside down pistol wherever he goes on his fucking chest. He's so... still involved. Yeah. Well, did you know that Dirty Harry and, and um, Bullet was modeled after? Those two films were sort of made because of, of him? Yes, indeed. Yeah, it's, yeah. Even, it's, it's, even, incredible. it's even mentioned in the film, man. It's one of those things where I <laughs> – we talked about this a little bit uh, because uh, Jack Graham and I did a, did a little uh, bonus episode on Wrong With Authority about this. And we were very much going, I really need to know more about Tashi. I feel like, I feel like the film does not really give me the full portrait of the historical Tashi. So uh, – yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I mean, the film is really about Graysmith and him digging this information up for what would become the Zodiac book. But I would like to see another perspective, all from Dave Toshi. Right. But before we get into that, we have to move on to some house cleaning first. So before we jump the gun here and really get into the meat of this, first off, I'll just go through two really quick comments here. My Blood on the Tracks, uh, my latest episode, the Black Exploitation episode, Ryan Egan left a comment saying, This is a fantastic show, Lee. I'm so glad you picked some of my favorite soundtracks from this genre, Black Caesar and Superfly, as well as Car Wash. I'm very much looking forward to the next episode, whatever the theme might be. 
some excellent music on display here, if I do say so myself. Thank you very much, Ryan. And the next two episodes are going to be, by the way, heavy metal horror movies. So uh, movies uh, in the horror genre that have heavy metal soundtracks. There's three of those movies available, but lots of good music in them. Yeah, no, I think I think I can. Uh, I'm going to try to pull everything from like the '80s to even up until. Yeah, there's a, a strange, time. strange small pool of those genre films, isn't there? Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And one more comment from CB Falls saying, "I've seen this movie and it was okay to me." And that's in relation to uh, Thief, the episode we previously did. So yeah, Thief was great. I listened to your music episode last night uh, on the way back from LA and thoroughly enjoyed it i'm glad you had music in from a, across 110th street one of my favorite mm-hmm. crime crime films of all time it's fantastic and black caesar whoo yeah. black caesar great soundtrack mama's dead you know that's so good i had to include that one because your episode you did on black caesar i was like that's been in my brain since then yeah, so it's, it's like... such a great song it's so sad as well it's, it's tough to listen to towards the end of that movie yeah Okay, now we have to move on to the thing we do with everybody who is a new guest on the show. We have to play the Movie God game. So, Mike Murphy, the Movie God game goes like this. I give you two people, soundtracks, scores, writers, uh, actors, whatever it may be when it comes to movies, and you have to eliminate one of them from the timeline. You have to think about this. You have to think, one of these never existed, and you have to think of the consequences of that, and then come to your decision which one you have to eliminate. So I think I've come to a good one for you here. Okay, I, I, for, I forgot you're going to do this. That's really the best <laughs> way to approach this. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I thought pretty hard on this. It might be a really easy one. You might just shame me like Gary Hill did the last time I did this game where he's like, oh, this guy, and fuck it, it's over. It was easy for him, in other words. Yeah, but uh, so you are movie god, Mike Murphy, and you must eliminate one of these two people, Michelle Bauer or Pam Greer. Oh, my God. (laughs) You, You are a fucking asshole. I've been told that. Oh my god! But you need to work through it. Like it, it'll help if you. No, I no, I, I I get I get it. I get what you're trying to do here. <laughs> this game, this game only but looks you also, if it hurts. Well, That's the whole point. It's supposed to hurt. Well, I'm I'm in extreme pain right now. It's like, who am I not going to pleasure myself to tonight? Pam Greer or Michelle Bauer? <laughs> um, mm, Pam Just... Greer has such such a. She has made such an incredible impact on cinema, specifically cinema of the 70s and the black exploitation, and then, you know, a little less in the 80s, a little less in the 90s. But, but then her, Jackie her, Brown, right? Oh, my God, Jackie Brown, one of my, I would have to say, probably my favorite Quentin Tarantino film. You guys are covering that next time around, right? Yeah, that's next episode. Yeah, looking forward to that. Oh, my goodness. I think I have my mind made up, though. Okay. So, a uh, huge fan of the very much out-of-reach Michelle Bauer. I've tried to get her on the show many, many times. Not happening. She's not on social media. She's an absolute doll. She's gorgeous. I love looking at her regardless of, you know, if it's in Fred Olin Race, the tomb, or it doesn't matter what she's in. She's just a pleasure to look at. Mm -hmm. She's funny. She's very entertaining. But I don't think we can really ignore what Pam Greer means to cinema. And her impact on cinema has been far-reaching if compared to the gorgeous um master baitable <laughs> <Michelle> <laughs> power so as much as it pains me 
And, you know, any any other two, and I would have probably come up with the answer right away, but I'm, I'm mulling it over. Uh, just because Pam Greer has this amazing rack, no, I mean amazing career <laughs> in in cinema, and and she has this the uh, she has an ability to take on any role, whether it's a seductress or someone who's very dominant in the role, even someone who's been turned into a man in a John Carpenter film. So, right. <laughs> no, uh, I'm gonna have to eliminate. He's saying this, Michelle Bauer. All right, fair choice, fair choice. Oh, it's painful. So, so my my original when when before I did this one, my original choice was going to be uh, Michelle Bauer and Linnea Quigley. But Linnea Quigley's gone. Yeah, I thought I thought that I thought that would be too easy. I mean, I thought to be gone. I love, I love Linnea. She means a lot to fans of horror and exploitation cinema, and I've had the pleasure of having her on the on the BBNBC podcast. But yeah, no, Michelle Bauer. I mean, uh, Linnea Quigley. See ya. See ya, trash. <laughs> yeah, no, nice, nice, nice choice, nice choice. I, I, I actually kind of agree with you here because, and this is a tough one for me too. Honestly, I'm, I'm thinking about it, and I'm thinking about who made more significant films, and that's where it sort of drops for me. It's like, and that's, that's why I choose her as well. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. But uh, I mean, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers is hands down probably my favorite B movie of all time. Mm-hmm. But in no way does it. Is it better than any of Pam Greer's worst exploitation Filipino B movies? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I agree. By the way, before we get into what we've watched as of late, Mike, just tell people about the BBNBC in case there's like two or three people who here who are fucking ignorant listening right now <laughs> who don't know. Well, we'll take those two or three. We need as much ears on our show as we can get. So Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts, we've been around for going, coming up on five years this August. We have 200 and, gee, coming up on episode 230, it drops tomorrow. And myself, Mark Searing, and Iris Saravia, every single week talk about, we try to talk about like lesser known exploitation movies. So along with the podcast, we have a website at bbnbcpodcast.com. And we do movie reviews, books, and texts, and ex- uh, ladies of exploitation. And so we have something for people who listen to shows like this and for people who read on the web. So bbnbcpodcast.com. There you have it. Nice. And I would highly recommend this podcast if you haven't listened to it. It is the best. And, you know, I'm saying this knowing that, you know, some of our podcast friends listen to this. And, you know, I hope there's no hurt feelings, but this is the best exploitation trash cinema podcast out there. It, it is the top of the fucking heap as far as I'm concerned. So there you go. I appreciate you saying that. Thank you very much. I, I don't necessarily agree with you, but I will, you know, I'll take what I could get. <laughs> So uh, we can move on to what we've uh, watched in the last little while. Mike, if you'd like to start, anything you've, uh, you want to talk about? Yeah, I'll keep this brief because I've been talking a little bit too much. I, I keep a letterbox so, because that's the only way at my age I can remember shit any, anymore. I'm just going to briefly talk about the last four films I watched. Beyond the Gates. It's a new horror film. It, it's all right. You know, they're sort of retreading old territory. Not something I'd probably go back to. The last... Uh, week we covered two movies on the podcast salon kitty it's a nazi exploitation film that covers a true event i won't get into what that event was but it's really a, a very good tinto brass movie and then we talked about uh jess franco's shitty well what movie of shit jess franco's isn't shitty but hey we, we we have covered some good <laughs> she ones killed on an ecstasy 
<laughs> oh, well, there you go. You guys know all about Jess Franco. So, yeah, Mark warned me going into this. This is the worst film I've ever seen. It's the worst Jess Franco film I've ever seen. Um, I argued that point. It's clearly not the worst Jess Franco film I've ever seen. Anyway, Devil Hunter, it's good for one watch. You know, it has some of those, those sort of Italian tropes we've all come to love. But it's a mess of a film. And, okay, I don't want to talk about superhero movies too much, you guys. I know how you feel about that. But I did. (laughs) (laughs) I watched, uh, with my kid today, I watched Iron Man 2. And it's just a fun, stupid popcorn movie. So, last but not least, I finally got to see, what's the guy's name? Peel? What's his first name? uh, Get Out. Yeah. Regardless of the director's name, something Peel. He's a comedian or something like Jordan, that. Jordan so Peele. I finally got Jordan to see Peel. Yes, thank you. We don't give him his due. I finally got to see Get Out. I went in with super low expectations because you guys know how the internet can be when it comes to movies. Right. But it lived up to those expectations and many ways exceeded it. And the thing about this movie is you kind of see what's happening from the get go. They're taking blacks, mm-hmm. right? And they're using them for paid slaves around the house. But you really don't know why. And you don't know why until about two minutes till the film's over with. And it's it's brilliantly hidden. And I appreciate it for hiding it so well. So That's a genre-defying film. Like, that... Yeah, that I agree. film that film kills expectations and twists what you think is going to happen. Yeah, Just you know, wonderful. and, and, when I'm, and I'm, when I'm watching it. And he finds this cardboard box in this hidden room that the mm-hmm. door is always open to. You know that the girlfriend's opening the door because she wants him to find what he finds. I'm thinking, what a fucking bitch this woman is. <laughs> yeah. And then at this point, there's 15 minutes left in the film, and you don't know exactly what's happening. And the ending is just brilliant because you realize, holy shit, this is something new, and it's never been done before, and it's a breath of fresh air. Yeah, no, it, it's one of the most original horror films I've seen in probably 20 or 30 years. And it totally lives up to the hype. It is like for me personally right now, the best movie I've seen of this year. And I don't, I don't know if I can see anything beating it at this point. Yeah. It's definitely on my best of first time watches. I got a couple other movies I prefer over it, but this one is definitely a film that I would highly recommend. Yeah. Totally agree. What about you guys? What have you seen recently? Okay, Daniel. I did get to see uh, the Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice Ultimate Cut, which uh, I had completely avoided the film until uh, the reviews for Wonder Woman started coming out. And I went, well, fuck, now I'm going to have to watch the Batman vs. Superman movie just to... uh, you know, just to just to be complete because I do want to see Wonder Woman in theaters. It's a glorious mess. It looks like it's gonna be really interesting politically for about the first fifteen minutes, and then it completely drops all of that. Honestly, I'm never gonna hate on a Superman movie. Um, this is something my wife and I kind of discussed because she was bored through most of the film. Um, she was just on her phone through the most of it. She's like, What's going on? And I'm like, It's great, it's Superman. Um, I have a you know that's the sign of a bad movie when your your counterpart is on the phone the whole movie. Right, right. I haven't seen it, but I've heard it's pretty terrible. Is it just a longer, worse version of the shorter bad version? It's. I mean, I haven't seen the. I, I never saw the original cut, so um, I know that this one is. You know, honestly, I don't hate it in the sense of I think you know I I kind of hate the way that we as a kind of cultural consumers on the internet just sort of like automatically declare it sucked because you know the costume was bad or because uh you know this performance was bad i think there's some interesting stuff going on in it i haven't quite really processed it fully yet because i only watched it last night but i do i do kind of hate 
Jesse Eisenberg is Lex Luthor. Not even because of Jesse Eisenberg, but because they have written him just to be like, ooh, I'm crazy kooky guy, you know? Um, And uh, he doesn't have to make any sense because he's just nuts. I had no idea he wasn't even in that movie. Yeah, yeah, he's Lex Lex Luthor. I think he could make a good one. I mean, originally, I mean, when you first see him, he's sort of the uh, (laughs) tech genius guy, sort of. You kind of see him in his basically like CEO of Facebook. I don't know where they got that idea. But uh, you definitely see him in sort of that role. And then uh, he just kind of very quickly becomes, I'm just crazy and I'm just trying to do the Heath Ledger Joker thing, but not doing it nearly as well and without the sort of institutional like story support around him. It's a glorious mess of a movie. I still really like lots of it. I think in that three hour ultimate cut, there's, you know, an hour and a half. It's a really, really good movie. I think it's playing with some interesting themes. I don't hate Zack Snyder the way a lot of people do. And I really love that first 15 minutes, which I think is, is really going for some interesting stuff that just gets completely dropped once it turns out, well, no, Lex Luthor was responsible for everything. But yeah, overall, I don't know. I think it's interesting. I'll definitely rewatch it. I don't hate it, but I don't love it either. I, I don't, I, I kind of don't know how I feel about it yet. I know Lee, you've seen it. What do you what do you think of it? My two notes for this film: <sighs> Why the fuck is Billy Zane not playing Lex Luthor? Because I think he would make a perfect fucking Lex Luthor at this point. And my my second one is: Why is there not more Wonder Woman in this film? Because she was probably the best thing in that film, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, she's she's great. Um, Gal Gadot, who um, I mean, obviously. The reviews for Wonder Woman have been absolutely astonishing. Um, yeah. My Twitter is just filled with... Everything. Mind you, these reviews are coming from 12-year-old boys just entering puberty. <laughs> well, there are those. There are those. And then there's, uh, there, there's a lot of... There's a lot of I, basically, my, poly, my, my uh, Twitter feed, Mike, in case you don't are, are not aware, is entirely leftist, you know, far-left socialist, anarchist, social justice people and uh, queer porn stars. That's pretty much the only two people on my uh, Twitter feed at this point. Thank God I don't pay any attention to Twitter. That's that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, um, probably I'm probably better for that. I that that's imagine. that's just that's just my Twitter. It's not all of Twitter. Yeah. Um, no, and, no, I think it's all of Twitter. And then and then neo Nazis <laughs> coming and invading. That those are those are kind of the, uh, the the three kinds of people that are on my Twitter at hey. this point. Rumor has it the Nazis are kind of assholes. They, they are. They are. I've I can tell that. you. I can I've tell you. That. I can tell you for a fact. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the people that I've seen uh, just just through that have have really uh, talked this movie up, and I'm definitely going to see that possibly tomorrow. We, my wife and I, have talked about uh, maybe depending on how she's feeling, uh, we might go and uh, check that out tomorrow. But um, make sure she leaves her phone at home. Well, I, I have a feeling she, she'll be she'll be involved for this one. Yeah, but uh, yeah, Superman just wasn't involving her at all. So yeah, yeah, that was uh, that wasn't a good movie. Sorry, it's just it's it it was bad. It was bad. I think when we did the best of 2016, that was right up there with Rob Zombie's 31. <laughs> so people hate Rob Zombie's 31 and the the new Superman. Yeah, versus, they're yeah. they're both. I mean, it's, Superman's like a legitimate superhero with powers, right? Right. He can, like pick up a bus and throw it if he wants, right? Yeah, Batman can't do that. Batman's just a rich guy with a lot of toys. Yeah, yeah and the, the the film the, the film plays with that. Is bad for this podcast. We, we I, I kind of um I almost threw a Marvel movie reference in the synopsis just to fuck with you, Mike. But um, I decided <laughs> not to until I, I to. until I pulled out. I watched Iron Man two. Huh? Yeah, yeah, and once you said I watched Iron Man two, I thought, <laughs> fuck, I should have included it. I own all the Iron Mans. I like Robert Downey Jr. quite a bit. Yeah, well, 
I I like uh my favorite is Iron Man three of the three, but um, that's my least favorite. But I enjoy it for what it is. I enjoy all of them. It's, it's just kind of stupid and fun. Sure. Uh, the only thing I'll mention that I watched was uh, the Devil's Candy a little while ago. It's a 2015 release, but I think it didn't really get wide release until like maybe this year, the last year and a half or so. I really enjoyed it. I usually don't really gravitate towards. <laughs> movies that sort of deal with like Christian mythology or whatever when when you're trying to sort of mix it with horror like I don't think The Exorcist is really that much of a great horror movie honestly I've never really rated it all that much but The Devil's Candy is really good it it kind of Hey Lee how old are you 39 right now so you didn't see that shit in the theaters when you were like 11 no, no. So that I mean, yes, it has I, a lot I, to do with it. I I, I totally agree. I, I, I think in today's audiences, there are movies like. The Exorcist, The Evil Dead, that are kind of laughable, but uh, but I, I, I when I saw The Exorcist when I was a kid, like I needed to rewear diapers. I did see The Exorcist on TV when I was around ten or eleven, though. So, oh, so what? Do you recall your reaction when seeing it? It's like, did you watch the whole thing? I think I, I think I tried to watch. I think I tried to show that to my daughter when she's probably about the same age. She only wanted to do it, nothing to do with it. I, I watched the whole thing. I was just kind of okay, like. Some of the stuff made me jump a little bit, but this hyperbole of it being the most scariest horror movie of all time, it's just like, no. It didn't work for you. No, it didn't do it. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. The Devil's Candy kind of, it doesn't overtly become like a Christian horror movie to any certain degree. Like it, it's it's much more of an elemental kind of horror in, in it. And it gets a lot of accolades for being this like really awesome looking stylized horror movie i've seen in a lot of reviews but it's deceptively minimalist in its storytelling and it's it's, it's actually a very creepy fucking film uh, about this family that moves into this house where uh, a murder occurred a uh, sort of mentally disabled son killed his mother and he went away to a mental hospital and he's coming back to live in the house although this family bought the house and they own it and he starts terrorizing them. But the only thing is he is being uh, basically demonized by voices he hears in his head. And these are real voices in his head. And the father of the family starts hearing voices in his head as well. There's a question of where the voices are coming from, uh, what they signify. And he start, he's an artist, so he starts painting pictures that show not only his daughter possibly ending up dead but uh, pictures of the sort of child victims of this uh, mentally disabled guy who is coming back. And it's actually a really effective film. I usually don't gravitate towards modern horror films all that much, but this one was really, really well done, really effective, and it's very much worth checking out if you haven't seen it yet. It's got a real positive buzz on the internet compared to, let's say, Get Out. Uh, it's not as not, good as... Oh, not contextually, but like, rate it. Like, what would you give Get Out? Would you give that an A? And then if so, what would you give this? Uh, Get Out would be an A+. plus. This would be about a B plus if I was... So it's this real solid offering. Then. Yeah, I, I was effectively creeped out by it. Like, if a, if a horror movie can actually creep me out to some certain degree, then yeah. it's going to get some recognition from me. And this one did because there's some very uncomfortable things in this film that made me go, oh, God, Really? Like, awesome. wow. So I, I, I really liked it. And I, I was hesitant because it was like it got a lot of buzz, but I watched it and I was like, OK, yeah, it it, it took me. It, it it really did take me right in and sucked me in. And 
and it left me feeling uneasy by the end of it. So it was like, okay, good. <laughs> it did its job. Yeah. Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts is a weekly podcast that discusses grindhouse and exploitation cinema. Your three hosts, Mike. It's a quick. <laughs> Thank you. Come again. Not racist at all. Mark. If you bend over and you have what is essentially a pubic cottontail coming out of the crack of your ass, you need to do some goddamn grooming. And listener favorite, Iris. I do not have sex with that horse. <laughs> will make you question your own political correctness while laughing at theirs. Episodes drop every Sunday and can be found by searching BB and BC Podcasts via Lipson, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and iHeartRadio. You can also listen to episodes directly from the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Broadcasting from the Cursed Earth, the Psycho-Semanticast. Let us face without panic the reality of our time, the fact that atom bombs may someday be dropped on our cities, and let us prepare for survival by understanding the weapon that threatens us. To have a, uh, an ignorant, uh, thin-skinned megalomaniac uh, who sends off uh, you know, Twitters at 3 a.m. if somebody angered him. The neo-Nazis turning up in Washington, D.C. to have a rally saying, Heil Trump. We talk about politics. I knew I couldn't trust you corporate grease balls. We talk about movies. You can't come down here and arrest people just because of what they look like. Are you crazy? But that's police harassment. We talk about political movies. We're in trouble. The whole world's in trouble. They're all around us and we never knew it. You can only see them with these special glasses. The Psycho Semanticast. In a world gone mad. As you know, the doomsday clock is a symbolic clock face analogizing humankind's proximity to extinction. One man must fight to survive on the global junkie of the future. You maniacs! You blew it up! Ah, oh, damn you! God damn you all day! Which versus the Doomsday Clock is that man's story. His search for entertainment is transmitted across time and space for your listening pleasure on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and your Android device. This podcast is not fit for human consumption. Some effects include laughter, concern, nausea, vomiting, and blame for more references. The producers accept our responsibility for any side effects, or internet friend, my cause. My effect guarantees with nothing, zero, zero, zilch, uh, I roll, no sausage. In short, you get nothing. Nothing. Good day, sir.
But that's it. So um, unless we have anything else to talk about, we can go right into our review of Zodiac uh, from 2007. Dear Editor, this is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the 4th of July. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. He wants his code in the afternoon edition. Ray Smith, don't you have a cartoon to finish? The Zodiac Killer has come to San Francisco. Another letter. School children make nice targets. He gave himself a name. Greek, Morse code, astrological signs. This guy's used them all. I like killing people because man is the most dangerous animal of all. How does one do that? I like puzzles. I do them a lot. Got any hard suspects? About uh, 90 an hour. I'm up to around 500. You got four crime scenes. Not a single usable print. You can't think of this case in normal police terms. He's breaking the pattern. Donna said you were a cartoonist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing at the gun range? I just want to help. What are you, some kind of boy scout? Eagle scout. Actually, first class. Oh, I've been thinking. Oh, God, Sam, listen. There's no evidence, Robert. What do you mean there's no evidence? You have him seen with the ciphers, the military boot prints, the bloody knife. All circumstantial. Why do you need to do this? Because nobody else will. Dave, you made a mistake! Get away from the window. Paul, are you okay? No. Why'd you do it? You put your face out there for him to see. Hello? Who is this? Zodiac was my job. It's not yours. He's still out there, Dave. 
Killing is his compulsion. It drives him, it's in his blood. Jeez. What? Squirrels. This is the Zodiac speaking. I have a gun. I can give you a lift to the service station. Do you always go around helping people in the night? I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. Are you sure there's nobody else in the house? Directed by David Fincher, written by James Vanderbilt, and Robert Graysmith's book is also credited here for the uh, writing. Jake Gyllenhaal stars as Robert Graysmith, Mark Ruffalo as Inspector Tashi, Anthony Edwards as Inspector William Armstrong, Robert Downey Jr. as Paul Avery, Brian Cox as Melvin Belli, John Carroll Lynch as Arthur Lay Allen, Chloe Seventy as Melanie, Elias Kitas as Sergeant Jack Molyneux, and Philip Baker Hall is Sherwood Morrill, and I'll let you go to the synopsis there, Daniel. A young woman named Darlene Farron invites a young man, Mike Bajot, out for dinner. But finding the drive-in patch, they quickly egress to a local lover's lane, where they chat about the young man's sorts of clothing and yell at some teenagers throwing firecrackers until a menacing car drives up, then leaves. Possibly Farron's husband? No, Farron says, but she obviously knows who is in the car and is deeply apprehensive. Minutes later, the car returns, and the two youngsters are shot by a handgun. It is July 4th, 1969, the setting is Vallejo, California, and the Zodiac Killer has struck again. A couple weeks later, Robert Graysmith, Jake Gyllenhaal, is a cartoonist working at the San Francisco Chronicle, when a handwritten note claiming to be from the killer of the two, plus two off-screen killings from the prior Christmas, appears in the mail. Publish the letter, along with a cipher included, or else the writer will kill a dozen persons over the weekend. The editorial team balks at first, but quickly decides to run the story, not on page one, as the killer has demanded, but on page four. And we're off to the races. Chronicle crime reporter Paul Avery, Robert Downey Jr., boozes and leches his way through his coverage of the case, begrudgingly befriended by the Eagle Scout Graysmith, and after an additional victim, a cab driver, is murdered a couple of weeks later in the San Francisco proper, we are presented with Dave Tashi, Mark Ruffalo, a famous homicide detective who is assigned to the case alongside his partner Armstrong, Anthony Edwards. The big city detectives struggle with the intense publicity surrounding the case, along with the influx of bogus tips that the publicity provides, especially after Avery finds an additional killing that may or may not be the handiwork of the same murderer, in addition to the general problems of collating information across no less than four separate police departments. The cops are mostly shit out of luck when it comes to narrowing down their suspects, but get a solid lead when a man named Don Chaney reveals that his former friend Arthur Lee Allen had talked about how he'd go around killing people in contact with the Zodiac Killer months before the initial bodies were found. The cops interview Allen, consider him an incredibly likely suspect due to heaps of circumstantial evidence, but since they have nothing solid, they have a hard time getting a warrant for the search of Allen's place. They do eventually scrape it together, however, and upon searching Allen's trailer, they discover lots of creepy squirrels, both dead and alive, some clothing that matches the killers, and several guns, but still nothing checks out. The case is dead in the water. Years pass. The case is cold, and Graysmith starts to think that maybe if someone wrote a book about the subject, collecting all the known information, that maybe it'd be helpful to the cause of trying to find the killer. He approaches Avery, now in a state of complete personal collapse due to alcohol and stress, who rebuffs him. Obviously, it's up to our hero Graysmith, who also wrote the book the film is based on, don't you know, and to try to solve the case for himself. 
Graysmith falls into an obsession with the Zodiac and has allowed absurd levels of access to the existing case files by the Vallejo police chief and given very helpful, not technically advised by Tashi. His career and marriage collapse, he veers from one suspect to another, and starts receiving creepy phone calls from a person who is very likely the killer, who with the help of a source named Wallace Penny, is able to piece together the clues that seem to point directly at Arthur Lee Allen. Most notably, the film says, the fact that the place where Darwin Farron worked was only 50 yards from the place that Allen lived. But all is for naught. There is no evidence. Allen dies a natural death, Graysmith publishes his book, and in the end, the surviving victim, Margot, is shown a photo array that includes Allen. That guy, he says, given the probability at about an 8 out of 10. The cop doing the photo array seems less than convinced. In text at the end of the film, we're told that a DNA test was performed comparing Allen to one of the envelopes, which was not a match. The case is still officially open, however, with only one real suspect, Arthur Lee Allen. It was found a match? Is that what you said? I don't think it matched. No, no, it was not a match. Okay, yeah. And it couldn't, you know, think about it. Maybe he didn't lick the envelope. Yeah, sure. It could have, it could have been his mom. <laughs> He's the kind of guy who would live with his mom, let alone a couple of squirrels in a cage. Yeah. But, uh, Mike, when's the first time you watched this, and uh, what are your sort of general thoughts on this film? So, oddly enough, I sort of have a fascination with this movie because, you know, I stated before that I think my father is a killer. I did not see this in the theater, uh, unfortunately. Maybe six or seven years ago, whenever it first, well, it's the shit. This movie's 10 years old already, you guys. Mm. Probably 2010, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, can we talk about this movie without talking about the facts, right? I mean, yeah. we need to remember that this film is sort of based on, not sort of, but it is based on the Robert Graysmith book right. of the same name, Zodiac. Therefore, the film, it doesn't speculate too much beyond what is in that book, naming Arthur Lee Allen as its prime suspect. Mm-hmm. But the spe- suspects go beyond Arthur Lee Allen. For instance, like Rick Marshall uh, lived in the same areas that the majority of the attacks took place. He was also down in Riverside about the same time uh, Sherry Joe Bates was murdered in 1966. There's also Ron Sullivan, who probably very well could have been the Zodiac killer. Uh, this guy was born in, I think, 1913. He attended Riverside City College. And again, like Rick Marshall, he was there when Sherry Joe Bates was murdered. He did move to Santa Cruz shortly afterwards. I don't know if you guys are familiar with California and its coastal cities, but Santa Cruz is probably 50 miles south of San Francisco, Mm. um, close enough to where the Zodiac Killer could have lived. But he also vacated that address and sort of disappeared after that. So confirmed kills. David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen was the first killings. These were not included in the movie for some weird reason, maybe because there weren't any survivors. I don't know. Yeah, that was that was the thing. They didn't want to uh, recreate a killing that they had no eyewitnesses for. because okay, it was... so, so the reason for the Paul Stein killing is because they had eyewitnesses. That's right, yeah. Right. Well, so well I think the reason is because they want to make Arthur Lee Allen look really guilty. Well, that too. It, yeah. And they do that in this movie very much so. They, they and like the book. Have you guys read the book? No, I haven't. It's free on, uh, shit, what's that service where they, you can listen to books? I, I, anyway. have, uh, I have found the, uh, I found the audio book on a torrent site. So, but so I haven't listened to it yet. Audio book is basically the same as, as the book itself. Anyway, I read the book years before the movie came out. And uh, recently, because I know we we're going to be talking about this film, listen to the, to the audio version of the book. Where was I going with this? I have no idea. Anyway, uh, back, to the, back to the confirmed kills. Darlene Farron and Mike Majot, 7469 Blue Rock Springs, just on the outskirts of Vallejo, California. Now, Vallejo, California is, because I'm from the Bay Area, I know the Bay Area really well, is 
slightly northeast of San Francisco by maybe 30, 35 miles, so pretty close. And then Silly Shepard and Brian Hartnell. Hartnell, by the way, Majo survived that attack, and right. so did Brian Hartnell on 92769 at Lake Berry. I said, interesting stories. God, I'm full of interesting stories, aren't I? <laughs> so my first wife, Lisa, we got married in 86, but I started dating her in 80. Her folks, she thought I was a weirdo from the get-go. I don't know why she married me. Her folks had a house up at Lake Berryessa, Rancho Monticello, very close to where these murders took place. So the very first weekend I went up, <laughs> I said, we got to go for a drive. <laughs> <laughs> So because the internet wasn't around in the early 80s, you pretty much had to go by what the the older news stories were. And I don't know that I exactly found the murder spot for for (laughs) these two poor people, uh, Celia Shepard and Brian Hartnell, but I came close, so I've been there. And then there's Paul Stein, right? Yeah. He's the last, I mean, the Zodiac, he claims 30 plus victims, but I I doubt it. I don't don't believe that. Kind of ridiculous. Paul Stein is the last one. He's the, the cab driver there in San Francisco on uh, 10, 11, 69. So my impressions on the film sort of having a, an interesting history with the killer itself is outside of not showing the first two films, super accurate. Mm-hmm. I mean, we look at the other films that preceded this, the Zodiac Killer in 1971, which is garbage. That's just exploitation, yeah. It's nothing but exploitation, right? And then Dirty Harry best sort of covers this with the Scorpio killer and then they throw in on top of that the kidnapping of Barbara Jane right. Mackle and uh, while Barbara Jane Mackle survived the poor girl in, in Dirty Harry doesn't survive and there are other instances of the Zodiac in movies but they're basically all garbage mm-hmm. they're not very realistic at all is what I'm saying so this particular film if being familiar with the book and the book is it excessively detailed so much so that it gets boring at times <laughs> that this movie really pays close attention to Grace Smith's book and all the details that he outlines in that book. So I've talked way too much, clearly. Okay, Daniel, what's your sort of general thoughts of the film? And when did you first see it? I actually saw it around the time that uh, Mike Murphy saw it, around 2009, 2010, sometime in that era yeah, I mean, I, I I rented it on Netflix back when they still did discs. That was a thing <laughs> you could do. I rented it. I watched it. Didn't think much of it, honestly. I'm not really a Fincher fan. I mean, I am, you know, I, I, I think he's a uh, phenomenal technician. This looks perfect. I mean, it's a great film in terms of its like, technical um, specs, mm-hmm. in terms of the uh, just the way it's shot, the way it's edited, the way you know, the performances are mostly phenomenal. Uh, I mean, you know. We could quibble about some stuff, but um, uh, for me, it just doesn't add up to much. I feel like it's a film that isn't, uh, it doesn't really know what it's trying to be, because on one level, it's sort of this docudrama of the Zodiac case, but it kind of doesn't have an ending, because they never really get to anything. But there is no, and then ending. Sort of, there is no ending, this is why I asked if you guys had read the book, and the reference there is, if you had read the book, you know that this film follows that almost to a T, and maybe to slight faults, if you know what I'm saying. Well, yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I mean, I think where I would land on it, and, and I kind of did the, uh, I kind of did the, I'm gonna fall down the Zodiac Killer websites, uh, K hole. Oh yeah, that's for, not for good. <laughs> that's not good. Uh, that that was that was a sort of a basically last weekend. Uh, my wife was out of town, so I basically just got drunk all day Saturday and just watched Zodiac three times and read Zodiac Killer websites. <laughs> um, 
and kind of came away with a very uh, disenchanted portrait of Robert Graysmith, uh, quite honestly. <laughs> yeah, um, Lee and I were kind of touching down on before we started recording that his book is sort of filled with inaccuracies if you ask people who have written books afterwards. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, maybe there's a jealous streak. I don't know. And come to find out that, yeah, probably some of the information that Robert Gray Smith had at the time while writing the books was inaccurate. But how would he how would he know? Yeah, I think that, I mean, a Gray Smith is like completely on the Arthur Lee Allen theory oh, uh, even agreed, today. Agreed 100 percent. And despite the fact that, I mean, in 2002, I mean, the DNA doesn't match. And it ultimately like, look, the handwriting doesn't match. The ballistics don't match, you know, and we can argue all this stuff. But ultimately, it's like move move on. You know, I understand this is kind of where he made his career and he's written some lots of other books, including about the Jack the Ripper case and autofocus, right. or at least the book that was that was made at autofocus. But at the same time, there is this sort of, you know, seeming unwillingness, at least from, you know, kind of the, the cursory bit of research I did because I decided one of the reasons I recorded the other show was so I would stop doing the research because that sort of purged that desire. You don't want to go down that rabbit hole too often. I would have spent all week just perusing all the all the details, and um, you know, it's it's one of those things. I learned all about credit default swaps for a podcast, where I got to spend six weeks learning the math behind uh, how Wall Street works. By the way, um, in case you want to know the level of work that I put into these things, where my brain will not let something go. But yeah, no, I, I kind of come away with yes, the film seems like very much it is a sort of reproduction of Ray Smith's book. But Graysmith's book is horrifyingly inaccurate, and therefore I have less respect for it as a sort of a representation of history. But I say that without having read Graysmith's book, just sort of reading other people talking about Graysmith's book and the way that he sort of intentionally or unintentionally seems to have distorted information. Yeah, the interesting thing course, about the book is it's extraordinarily detailed, maybe a bit too much, and I think it would bore a lot of people. And he admits names, and I, I guess maybe he did that for legal purposes. Yeah, no, that seems likely. I mean, but the, like the December 18th birthday thing. Yeah. And he says, you know, the phone call happened on December 18th. Well, from what I was reading, the phone call to uh, Belli did not happen on December 18th. Right. It happened December 20th at the early, That's earliest. That's correct. Yep. And I mean, like Darlene Farron was getting phone calls from somebody on that. Well, yeah, Darlene Farron was getting phone calls from her brother Leo, who was trying to score some weed. Like, this has nothing to do with... and. The painting party probably doesn't happen. So, like, all the bits of evidence that we're convinced as this is, like, the reason Arthur Lee Allen is the killer in the film are not actually real. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and a lot of the stuff that was legit is still circumstantial to this day. Like, it's it's kind of stuff that just basically stopped him from being a suspect uh, from the San Francisco to police department all out, pretty much. My, my th- sort of general thoughts on this, I kind of look at this film as not necessarily a Zodiac film. It Yeah, it is about the Zodiac, but it at the same time, if you look at it sort of structurally, it's just one of the best police procedurals ever put to film, I think. I think that's what its biggest strength is, honestly. I watch this film and I go, okay, this is a film that actually understands how police officers actually work and how due process is actually a thing that you don't see in other films, for the most part. I actually have a lot of respect for it in, in that regard. Like, I, I'm watching this, okay, okay, this, this is a film that actually understands cops and what, how they actually have to do their job. Unlike, say, Dirty Harry, where <laughs> due process doesn't exist <laughs> up to a certain point. Uh, but you look at this, and this is, this is one of those films that is like, say, uh, Serpico or Stray Dog or Fargo 
or bullet or something like that where it actually pays respect to what the police officers actually have to do it actually is a police procedural at its core and it's and you know when you're watching this in 2017 for the first time that is a little bit aggravating because you had to pick the phone up yeah and, and i mean scenes only were just sort of new some police departments have some and nowadays shit gets done quick maybe too quick and the aggravation, I think, is part of what makes this film feel so authentic, though. It's because that is police work. It <laughs> it becomes aggravating. Like, you see Dave Toshi and uh, Bill Anderson struggle because they think they have this guy. They think they've nailed him. And then the evidence just isn't enough. It's too circumstantial. They can't get a fucking case. They go for a search warrant initially for Arthur Lee Allen and they can't get it certain jurisdiction. But in another one, they can get it, and they finally get into his trailer. And it's just all these loopholes and due process and legality, and this is the stuff they have to do day by day. Apparently, um, from what I understand, a lot of police have actually watched this film, and they find it incredibly authentic as far as just the kind of stuff they have to do day to day, like trying to get a case solved. Yeah, and, and that's some, one of the reasons why I brought up the book and whether any of you guys have, have, have read it or not is that this movie does follow the book almost to the T. There are some exceptions, but it's it follows it very closely, and it's it's extremely detailed and accurate, and that's one of the reasons why I love this movie so much. Now, whether or not Arthur Lee Allen did it, that's a whole other matter, right? right? I mean, the evidence says, no, he didn't. this isn't your guy. It's somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... I mean, this movie definitely, I don't know if it necessarily has a strong narrative as far as going against Arthur Lee Allen, but I mean, it, it feels like it pulls back a little bit to a certain extent, but it is pretty much fingering him as the primary suspect. At that and the odd, thing, the odd thing about that is, is uh, John Carroll Lynch's character, Norm Gunderson, oh wait, that's the wrong movie. <laughs> Doesn't, we covered that a few weeks ago. I wish I wish I wish we'd done them back. There's, back, honestly. there's some backstory there. Uh, the Zodiac killer end up in Fargo. Anyway, his his character doesn't show up until 80 minutes into the film, and and the book is very much the same way. You're, I, I'm two thirds through the book, and I'm thinking, who the fuck's a killer? Everything's speculative at this point. We have no idea who the killer is. Then all of a sudden, this guy comes into play. You know, Arthur yeah. Allen, and he becomes like hard focus for Gray Smith, and that that can be bad if you're a guy who desperately wants to find who the killer is and the cops haven't been able to do it the detectives have gone down every avenue and all of a sudden this this cartoonist yeah you know unveils who the killer is although he, he didn't do that but you know maybe he was in it too deep well yeah this film fucks with your expectations i mean in the first 30 minutes you get the three kill you get the three murders uh, the three zodiac attacks, right? You get the three they show you. Yeah, they don't well, show you get yeah and, and you should, you should see them up front because the movie's not about the kills. Yeah, that's the thing. It, uh, that's another thing I really respect about this film, by the way, is that it is not an exploitation film. This film does not sort of demean or sort of rake through the muck the actual kills. Like it's very detached and clinical about them, and it presents them as sort of matter of fact. Like you could kind of argue maybe there's a bit of sensationalism to them as far as the slow motion goes for the kills but for the most part this really just kind of presents them to certain detail as is like it's not 
it's not trying to make this an exploitation film. It's not trying to rake this shit to the muck. It's it's very matter of fact. And yeah, again, it follows the book to a T. There's yeah. there's no conclusion. Sorry, folks, if you're listening to this, if you haven't seen the Zodiac movie, there's no conclusion. He was never caught. He or she was never caught. Yeah. So my question to both of you, by the way, is what do you what do you think of like how the sort of second half of this film goes where it starts to become about obsession and how obsession can kind of ruin people's lives? Do do, uh, and I'll go to you first, Mike. Do you feel like this film sort of adequately portrays that or do you feel like? No, it it totally does. I mean, we see. We see the David, uh, David, I see David, almost about to say David Lynch. I got uh, Twin Peaks on my mind. For some <laughs> uh, no, so uh, John, the John Carroll Lynch, the supposed uh, Zodiac killer, Arthur Lee Allen, comes in about 80 minutes in. I think the film gets better at this point. On the other hand, you do see the obsession of the Graysmith character, and he starts to decline in his everyday life. He starts paying less attention to his children. His wife takes the children to her mother's because they no longer exist. Because he's so ingrained in what he's doing, and he realizes, "Holy shit, I got enough stuff here to write a book. I think I want to write a book." So, yeah. yeah, no, it takes a sort of a strange turn, but then again, it follows. It follows again, I keep going back to, "Have you read the book?" It follows the book to the T. So, and I don't know, maybe I shouldn't have read the book. I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, what do you think on that, Dan? I don't think it portrays this obsession very well at all honestly i think it tells us that he's obsessed and i think that it sort of you know portrays he loses his job he loses his wife he's sort of sitting there with his kids and and having them look up dates and compare them to you know the solstice and you know that sort of stuff um it sort of portrays it but i feel like this is what fincher is is not very good at at this level is giving us a sort of cultural context or a character context and i think gyllenhaal as much as i've really liked his performances and other things including the um a Nightcrawler yeah, film, which so you and good. I both so really good. liked yeah. uh, last year. He's really good there, but I don't like him. I, I don't think that he serves the uh, the sort of obsessive, crazy thing very well towards the end of the film. It's really only in the last 45 minutes that you really sort of get the full-on, and now Graysmith is going to solve the case. Um, I feel like it's sort of presenting Graysmith, the hero, it's trying to give us a, a an ending, and it's trying to kind of portray this, but I feel like it's just, it's just sort of limp, because ultimately... The film, despite the fact that it sort of hedges its bets, is sort of like telling us that Graysmith is probably right. I feel like if you were going to sort of portray this sort of the depths of obsession, you should be kind of pointing out all the... like. We should feel like when Tashi is kind of saying, like, look, the evidence doesn't point to this guy, you need to move on. We need to kind of see that as Graysmith falling down a rabbit hole and refusing to let go of this thing as opposed to he's doggedly, you know, like following the truth where it leads, you know, I mean, the, the fact that it, I mean, the fact that it's based on the book, I mean, I agree. It, it seems to very, even though I haven't read the book. So everything that I've gotten from it is that it's very closely based on the book to, to its detriment. It should, it should be based on absolutely the 100% cause we know that the book now in 2017 isn't exactly the most accurate. Right. We know that Fincher and Vanderbilt and some of the producers, like they did interviews with some of the surviving witnesses and the family members and those sorts of things. And that it, it seems like they, they did all that, but yet, and realized that Grace Smith yes, is full exactly. of shit on some stuff. And then, and, and then didn't really do anything to actually, you know, like make the film any differently. And then, of course, they also sort of elaborated certain elements, like the uh, some of the details about the, the first killing in the film are, are not, to my mind, really justified by what I know of the evidence and that sort of thing. So, And I'm kind of wondering, like, why did they decide to leave out the 
actual first killing the the Faraday. And- I, I have I have a, I have a, I have an idea about that. Would you like to hear it? What is it? it? It is because the whole thing that they're trying to because they've got this one piece of evidence, right? That the IHOP where Fern worked is fifty yards from this place where yeah, you're right. Alan, oh, you're so right about right? that. They've got that yep. one thing. There's a there are two salt shakers inches apart and clearly this is really important evidence of course Farron didn't work there when she died and alan didn't live there when Farron worked there so it doesn't mean anything in the real history but it means something really important for the film right what the, and and we know that the film is going to end with majo, majo doing the photo array thing and saying like that guy that's the killer eight out of ten right so what we do is we kind of rewind to the beginning and the beginning is Farron knew her killer so the whole thing with that opening sequence is establishing that Farron was afraid of somebody and, and knew who it was in that car, which none of those things seem to be true based on the events. And also that Majo had a really good reason. He has he, he kind of looks at the guy he has some, some words with, the killer. He might have actually gotten to see the killer, which also seems to not be true. So the whole thing is yeah. setting up. I mean, and again, I watched this thing three times over a course of a day <laughs> while reading a bunch of Zodiac Killer websites. By the way... Not a good thing to do when you're alone in the house is to sit and read. <laughs> no, no, those, those forums, by the way, are they're they're the definition of a fucking rabbit hole. Like, oh yeah, no, no, there's a whole bunch of bullshit out there. I'm not trying to like like say like I read these things and I know the truth. I don't think anybody out there fucking knows the truth. I mean, I, I think I think the killer clearly no one does. I, I think they should have started this film a lot like Sudden Impact, where the pimp gets killed and you know nothing about why he got killed david faraday and betty lou johnson should have been part of this movie just for the sure. sake of the kill count well we're, we're, we're set up we're set up with this idea that like farron is sort of like if farron were the first victim and arthur lee allen actually did know her and actually did live there and that's sort of like then that's like okay this is the birth of these killings and then once he got yeah. a taste of it then suddenly okay now we're and, and that's sort of psychologically motivating and the film is sort of uh, giving us this it's setting it up in these ways and kind of ignoring that initial uh, what is it lake harman road yeah yeah, yeah lake harman road right out lake harman road it's ignoring those killings it's not ignoring them. It mentions them, but it doesn't portray them because it wants to give us this narrative through line, right? But the narrative through line, I mean, look, if you're going to do a fictionalized story of this thing and you're going to kind of portray this thing and you're going to make this a, just a story, I mean, it works as a story and I'm perfectly okay with like that. But if you're going to portray it as this docudrama like based on police files and, and then you start making up details and you start manipulating everything to make it look like this guy is guilty, I have much less respect for it. I, I actually think this film is actively harmful, despite the fact that I actually sort of admire it technically and um, all of the things you guys said about the, the police procedural elements are true. I don't think it's the best police procedural in, in 20 years or whatever, but like it's, it works. It does what it's supposed to do. But uh, ultimately, I, I kind of one of the things that I keep coming back to is the film JFK, mm-hmm. which uh, is equally kind of based on a book by this person who is manipulating evidence to uh, serve his own purposes, but is kind of brilliant in its own right just as a film. But then once you look into the real history, it just falls apart completely. And that's kind of what Zodiac did to me. The second I started looking into the details, it's like, no, no, I don't, I don't buy this. And once I don't buy it as a sort of a document about the real history, with the fact that it's sort of at least seeming based on its technical merits to be trying to recreate that history, I kind of think it's reprehensible. And um, I apologize to everyone who loves this film <laughs> for saying that, but I kind of think it's reprehensible. 
Hey, apologize to yourself. You watched it three times. <laughs> oh, I watched it. I watched <laughs> just this, I've watched. I watched this film like six times over mm-hmm. the course of the last three weeks, specifically because I wanted to uh, to just kind of. So I, a lot of times, just kind of throwing it on. That's dedication, right there, to your craft. Dedication. It's. Uh, I had nothing else to do. I'm not. I'm not like researching neo Nazis at all. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of this stuff kind of hinges on what's his name, Mike Magno, Mike Majo. Is that his name? Something yeah, Majo. And his testimony is very unreliable. Like the police actually consider his testimony unreliable because this, yeah, and that's because he, you know, he was he. Well, uh, unlike uh, what's his name, um, Brian Hartnell, who went on to, I guess, be a public defender or something like that. Some yeah, he actually thing. he actually picked himself up and actually. He on. made something of himself, whereas yeah. Majot, this this event had the opposite on his life, where he started taking drugs and started yeah. drinking. So his sort of him picking out Arthur Lee Allen in a set of photos, I don't know that it added up to a whole lot. No, because they actually had to do an inv- they actually had to hire a private investigator to find him to get him as a consultant for the film because yeah. at the at the time he was uh, homeless. This is a guy whose life was totally destroyed by the Zodiac. He survived the killing. He was in the hospital for a long time, and when he recovered, this is a guy who had his father actually reject him and tell him to go to fuck away because he was too bi- he was bad for his father's business. He was working for his father, and the Zodiac notoriety made him bad for business. And so he was rejected by his family, basically, and he went on to become basically a vagrant and a drifter, fell into hard drugs. And if you watch the... Uh, supplements on the Zodiac DVD, you can see that he's, you know, he's had a hard life. You can tell just by way yeah. of listening to him talk. He's yeah. and his 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 recounts of the events are not something you can quite rely on. Sadly, rightfully so. I mean, that's something that no one wants to go through. Yeah, and I mean, you know, there there are people who suspect that he maybe is holding back things, and I mean, that's his right. He's a victim, and he's had a really terrible fucking time it's it, it's just it's just really sad that the film doesn't quite you know explore that kind of aspect like the film definitely does go towards trying to come up with some sort of catharsis for the viewer as well you know like okay we can't catch arthur lee allen but we all know arthur lee allen did it you know but did he yeah, and I mean, at the... well, I, I think there's a difference between sort of a narrative conclusion and a like a case conclusion, mm-hmm. right? Because narrative. I mean, if you structure, I mean, ultimately, I think the idea of uh, basing the film like on I, I said this earlier, basing the film on Grace Smith's book is sort of a mistake because then you're sort of like use that as your spine. I mean, even just a film that's sort of about the way that people like dive into the case it sort of starts with some dude dicking around on the internet like following you know the threads would maybe be more interesting because you could explore all these different theories of the case which i mean like the ciphers are barely even you know really covered in the film to any degree yeah but there's a reason Um, for that only only one of them was really ever solved And, and if you're sitting down and watching this for the very first time this is just like the book because it's so focused on Arthur Lee Allen. You're going to walk away thinking that Arthur Lee Allen is he's a Zodiac killer when, in fact, the evidence is saying, guess what? Not him at all. Yeah. Okay. And another reason the ciphers weren't as prominent in the film is because they didn't want to make it a gimmick as well. I was actually listening to the uh, 
the commentary, like there's there's a David Fincher commentary in this, and then there's the commentary from like some of the producers and uh, the actors, like Robert Downey Jr. and uh, what's his face? Uh, God damn it, James Elroy. No, yeah, James Elroy's on it too, but uh, the uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and the people involved in the in the filmmaking were like, yeah, the, the ciphers were interesting and cool, but we, we we didn't want to make them a major focus because we felt it would become like just kind of a gimmick and we didn't want people to focus on a gimmick in the film right i mean at a certain point i mean um this is something that that jack and i talked about a bit but uh you know the first one is solved in a couple of days by a couple of people over a, over a kitchen table essentially mm-hmm. um and then none of the rest of them are solved and i you know my my contention is that either it's pure gibberish or um it's a one-time pad yeah you know that he realized, oh, I thought I was really clever and can make a, a code that nobody could crack. And really, like, no, 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 this is totally crackable. <laughs> you know? Well, I think that's one of the things about the Zodiac is like, there's this sort of, you know, legendary thing around him now. But I think one of the good things this film does it is it demystifies him as just being, he's not this enigmatic fucking mastermind ser- serial killer that you see in movies these days where every serial killer is a fucking genius and shit. He's just this guy who didn't get caught. He got lucky. And this is a guy who apparently the way the evidence sort of points that he maybe got spooked for a while or he went to jail or one of the other, you know, and he stopped for a while and then he came back. It, it, or he or he died in 1980 or, like my father. <laughs> but well, the film the film points at that like 1977, 1976 letter, yeah. I think. And so it's like, well, that's a new letter from the Zodiac. But my understanding is that that's not really like considered to be a Zodiac letter. Those those were discredited. Yeah. So yeah. what are your guys' thought on the killer, regardless of who he is? He often has spelled words in his letters. Is this guy just an average Joe, or is he of high intelligence? No, I don't Whoever think he. Maybe. I, I I don't think he was that smart. I think he was just a narcissistic nutcase that was not of high intelligence and. I think probably the most, for the most part, the reason he didn't get caught is he was just lucky, honestly. I don't even know that it's lucky. I mean, you know, if he wears I mean, look, this is pre-DNA. You wear gloves, you attack people at random. Well, that's, you know, that's you know, what I mean. You know, it's not about like, you know, he has to, uh, I mean, sure, sure, luck is a part of it, but it's also, you know, you do, you do well, basic the, procedures. Yeah, the forensics weren't yeah, the there. Forensi- right? The forensics aren't there because, like, he kind of knew. I mean, I, I suspect if he had started in 2017 killing people, then we now have, like, advanced evidence gathering forensic technology. We'd find this guy in 15 minutes. You know, that was just. The- That's what I was going to ask next is if these, if these crimes occurred last year. Would we have a suspect, a confirmed suspect in custody? I, I mean, my my guess is it's somebody who probably died shortly after the, the seventy four letter was sent. I mean, car accident or disease, or he was put in prison or, or whatever. I mean, because we know that serial killers don't ever really stop; they kind of keep going. And maybe, yeah, I mean, so there was, I mean, there's that sort of. Um, what is it? The Santa Rosa Hitchhiker, Hitchhiker Murders. I guess Mike, you seem to know this uh, this this background fairly well. There's some implication, like Arthur Lee Allen lived at the center where these Hitchhiker Murders happened, and uh, it's during this period when the Zodiac was silent. You know? California is like the capital to all serial killers, right? But because like 20 percent of the U.S. population lives in fucking California, right? So. Exactly. Well, and and I mean. <sighs> 
There are people out there who connect the fucking stalker from the town of Dread to Sundown to the Zodiac Killer and say the same dude. I mean, you know, there's, the, there's that Ted kind of Kaczynski shit. was once a suspect. Yeah, and yeah, case, which is ridiculous. <laughs> I, I've seen I've seen people connecting the uh, the case, the young woman who was killed, uh, in that was um, the Making a Murderer Netflix series. That yeah, Teresa Hallback. Steve. Teresa Hallback. That Steve Avery was framed yeah, yeah, by yeah. the this one guy who's also the Zodiac killer and the Santa Rosa hitchhiker killer and the person who killed the uh, the West Memphis Three. You know the, those. You know all all. You know that all these killings are this one guy, and he's killed like thousands of people over the years. And um, yeah, I've seen there are all kinds of like crazy conspiracy theories. I mean, you know, there's there's the radium theory that like two of the crimes exist over. Uh, you know, are at an at a, a radium's distance on a. Oh, there's uh, there's a Ben Kingsley movie that came out years ago. I think it's oh, Suspect, Suspect Zero. Zero. Yeah, directed, that, that... directed by Tarsum. Who also did the cell? Yeah, which subscribes to that theory of like the massive mega serial killer who has killed million, like thousands of people across America or whatever. Hey, I want to get back to your point about the book being bullshit. Look, I think we all know at this point that the book has inaccuracies, and I think if you deny that, then you're you know you're denying yourself the truth. And unfortunately, because of that, the movie has some inaccuracies as well. Right. On the other hand, Lee said it early, the, the police procedural part of this movie is absolutely fantastic. And there are a lot of very good, solid facts in the movie. Like, did Grace Smith actually meet Arthur Lee Allen face-to-face in an Ace Hardware at the end of the movie? Or that's, at the, that's like the, thing, at the end of the story. That's the thing. I, I, like I he, couldn't find any like confirmation on that. Like, I, don't, I couldn't either. Well, my my reading my reading was that he not only tried to meet him, but he had like tried to get friends to go in and get handwriting samples from oh, him. Oh, I think I read that as well. Um, which I mean, it's hard to know because I basically did like a very cursory like I I spent ten hours on the internet doing internet research. Therefore, I'm an expert, right? So take everything with a grain. I, no, I, I had I had heard that well as well, and I also heard that Alan refused to put anything to paper. And he had his coworker do it. Well, well, because because if you think this guy's creeping around, like I mean, look, I, I would do the fucking same thing, you know, <laughs> whether I'm the killer or not. There's no way I'm like, yeah, no, I'm going to give you handwriting samples to go because you know clearly this guy. I mean, there's this uh, episode of a uh, current affair that was recorded uh, towards the end of Arthur Lee Allen's life where he's like, I'm not the damn Zodiac, you know, yeah. <laughs> clearly this guy, I mean, and again, we can, we can be agnostic about the question of whether he was or wasn't the Zodiac. Right. The evidence does not point that way, but like, so even whether he is or isn't, I mean, a, he was a child molester. I'm not trying to defend a fucking child molester. All right. So, but just because he, you know, molested children doesn't make him the fucking right. Zodiac. Right. right? It's an altogether different uh, crime. Yeah, it's a very different kind of thing. In fact, I mean, you know, just psychologically speaking, you know, if he's a child molester, it makes him less likely to be the Yeah, guy. you're exactly correct about that. Yeah. But, you know, even even beyond uh, even beyond that, you know, like, um, so, so I'm not trying to defend him on that regard. But Grace Smith writes the book in 86. He's been researching it for 
eight years, I think, probably, at that point. Longer. He had, he, yeah, eight to ten years, something like that. Um, he he had he had been kind of doing the thing. He he had tried to get handwriting samples, and like ultimately, it's like, look, you're hounding me. Even though he used a fake name for the actual book, you are actually being really obtrusive to my life. At that point, I'd say, like, yeah, I'm not giving handwriting samples for shit. And, here's, and, like, and that's, that's you, one of the things you know? I think the movie's pretty frank about. By the way, it's actually pretty frank about how obsessive Gray Smith actually was like a lot of that stuff is not it's not a put upon like a lot of the stuff that you see gray smith do in this film is actually stuff he actually did i mean he for story purposes of course they made it that he he met uh avery and they were you know working together and shit that never actually happened but he did actually pilfer garbage from Avery's trash to further his uh, investigation. I feel like the film, and sorry, I'm just going to completely ignore Mike Murphy at this point um, and just, just get in line with, with you. <laughs> yeah, <it's... laughs> um I feel I feel like the film uh, completely downplays anything that is uh, like it includes it as a sense of like obligation that like yeah he's searching through Avery's trash but then like it's it's not like it's not portrayed in the film it's just stated in the film I mean Grace Smith yeah. is the hero here and really like Paul Avery like look I mean the Zodiac case just completely took over that guy's life and he just completely yeah you, you took the words so, out of my mouth shouldn't uh, have shouldn't this story have been around Paul Avery. I mean, it's not because Grace Smith wrote the book, and and the movie is based on the book. But who was closest to this whole scenario? Avery was. And Avery's life was not destroyed by the Zodiac, by the way. Not at all. <laughs> he ended up covering the Patty Hearst kidnapping. He he got married later in his life to this uh, great feminist icon who survives him and, and died of emphysema. I mean, honestly, I mean, I think Robert Downey Jr. Um, is great in the film. I like Robert Downey Jr., but at the same time, his character is the least well served with regards to. I, 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 I agree. I don't know if because... you guys are aware of this, but Robert Downey Jr. is really good in Iron Man. <laughs> I, I in, in Zodiac, I think he's actually kind of channeling uh, Hunter S. Thompson. I feel like, oh yeah, no, no, there's... like I'm watching him not at first, but when he starts getting more and more drunk and and starts being really obsessive about Zodiac hunting him down. Then he really just like totally flips on Hunter and he just goes nuts. Also, well, you see hints of it too when this, in the scene with him with Graysmith in the bar where he starts drinking that blue weird drink that Graysmith was drinking. It's like, yeah, I'm yeah, Velvo. Velvo. <laughs> well, if you tried you it, if you laugh. tried it, you, you wouldn't make fun of it. Yeah, you wouldn't laugh. Yeah, no. And then like four of them, you know, coming up. Uh, yeah, that's that's a, I mean, that's a great moment. And um, honestly, this is one of those things that uh, I completely forgive of films of this kind, where, yeah, these two characters didn't meet until later, and they weren't really buddies. But at the same time, yeah. We're trying to portray a relationship. We're trying to kind of give information to the audience. I don't have a problem with that because that's just sort of incidental detail. That element of these two people were friends doesn't yeah. make anybody look bad, really. I do think the film kind of goes, you know, well, Paul Avery became a loser, but Robert Graysmith, he soldiered on and really saved the world by publishing this book. You know that bit in The Simpsons, and, I, and I'm, uh, I apologize for bringing up The Simpsons at this point, but uh, there is this bit in The Simpsons where they, The Simpsons go to... Uh, Disneyland and they go to like this uh, like kind of Epcot thing and it's like set you know the thing was supposed supposedly created in the late 60s and it's like there's a ride where it's like the electric car of the future and then founded by Exxon and then it goes oh no I'm in an electric car it's supposed to be a futuristic gas powered car I'm terrible that's kind of the impression that I get uh, upon looking at uh, Avery in this film 
Daniel's going to hate me for what I'm about to say next. What I'm about, I've never seen it. I don't hate anybody. It's fine. Uh, Wait, hold on. I haven't said it yet. I've not seen an episode of The Simpsons. Furthermore, furthermore, I've never seen one episode of Doctor Who. Oh, well, that that might be a contention there. Simpsons, I'd I'd let it go, but I don't know about about Doctor Who. I I haven't seen any Doctor Who until I was like 32. So, you know, that's a that's a that's That's a reasonable thing. And and, sure. and and honestly, and honestly, most of Doctor Who is shit. Well, you know, from yeah. what I heard, it's I pretty. Mean, as, as 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 someone who has watched every single fucking episode of Doctor Who, most of Doctor Who is shit. That's funny. <laughs> we can talk about Doctor Who now instead of talking about no, Zodiac. That would be a conversation between you two. Clearly, yeah, no, yeah, no, we're not going to talk about Doctor Who. Fuck that shit. <laughs> what would the third Doctor have to say about the Zodiac Killer? That's he he would have went back in time and solved the fucking case. Yeah, he would have probably. I guess he's a time traveler. Yeah. Well, the the third doctor, the third doctor is uh, doesn't have access to the TARDIS, so he would have to, uh, you know, research it on his own. I don't even know what you just said. He still, he still, he still would have solved it. John John Petrie would have solved it. John John, John Pertwee would have been the good version of Avery in this film. Yeah. It's kind of well, the Zodiac case putting this derailed episode back on track ever be solved? No. No, it, it's like the Jack the Ripper case, and you'll you'll never actually find enough evidence to really conclusively say one way or the other. Yeah, and, here, and, and here's the thing about this case, and um, this is what makes me think of Dirty Harry. Dirty Harry is the equivalent of uh, any film you see where, like, Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper, where it's someone actually solving the case and actually catching the bad guy that is in the public consciousness that won't go away. And that person that has never been caught, that killer that's never been caught, Dirty Harry provides that catharsis for people that uh, real life can never provide. They need that ending. Yeah. Well, police procedurals provide this, like, structure. And then the Sherlock Holmes stories kind of do, you know, where... There's a crime, then you get a really bright person to come in. It's the myth of Sherlock Holmes, right? Mm-hmm. Who will like analyze the blood stains and the pattern and kind of go, oh, it has to be done this way. And then, like, you know, look at all the details. And then at the end of it, you get it's wrapped up in a bow, and here's the killer, and here's the, the person doing this. And most crimes are not actually solved that way. And most police work is not actually done that way. And the reality is that a film that kind of presents a real crime, I would love to see a version of the Zodiac case, which really leaned a little bit harder on the unsolvability of the crime and the fact that, you know, that really kind of made the, that forefronted the fact that we're never going to have enough evidence to really do this, to really really like get to the end of this i don't think you'll ever see that to be honest with you it's not interesting to most people and i hate to say it even though as much as i i love this film zodiac i think you're looking at the best zodiac film period i, I, don't, I don't i don't think there's going to be a better well film. do you do you consider dirty harry a zodiac film i don't actually know no. i i think it leans oh. on the crimes in which were taking place at the time you know we mentioned well he's a scorpio killer instead of the zodiac killer and then the barbara jane Mackle or uh, is it Mackie? I think it's Mackle kidnapping. It leans on those because that's what's hitting the news and it's in pop culture, but I don't consider it a Zodiac film, no. No, sure, sure. I mean, I, I think Dirty Harry is a better film. Oh, absolutely. I don't, I don't think it's a Zodiac it, It's a better film because it resolves itself and it's fucking Clint Eastwood. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's Clint Eastwood of that era. By the way, Dirty Harry has 
absolutely atrocious politics, but it's oh, a brilliant yeah. film. Of course, and, and if you were to throw Dirty Harry in with the Pam Greer solution, I think both the ladies would have died. So <laughs> I'm just saying I probably would have chosen Dirty Harry over any woman. So What if Pam Greer had been Dirty Harry's girlfriend in Dirty Harry? I probably would have masturbated for days at a time. Yeah, and I think that would even be more of a classic than it was, honestly. <laughs> I agree. Like, like come on. <laughs> That, that would have been great. Pam Greer wouldn't have taken Clint Eastwood's shit. Basically. No. I mean, what if, what if Pam Greer had been cast as Dirty Harry? That yeah, would have worked I, too. I'd go for that. <laughs> I mean, you see her in Foxy Brown and Coffee. She totally she sells is Dirty it. Harry. She is, yes. That that would have been that would have been far better. I mean, as good as Dirty Harry is, that would have been a way better film. I would love to see her like beating up the Scorpio. And and speaking of female actresses, Chloe Savini, let's just briefly talk about her part in this, which is probably the most thankless fucking role in this film. She does not become the shrewish wife or whatever. And, and you know, no, she like says, she says, fuck it, I'm taking my kids elsewhere. You don't care about us anymore. I got she, a life to live. She, she actually I, I honestly think she, like she's probably the best actor in this film, honestly, as far as her part goes. She actually has the most to say and do in this, even though her part is know, so man. small. It's a pretty good cast in this movie. Well, look, we know that David Fincher doesn't fucking care about actors, right? Well, I mean, can we just admit that? Yeah. He he kind of leaves actors out to dry. And so the actors that will perform well, that will really kind of give him good material, that will really deliver are actors that don't really need a director to kind of give them anything. So I think Ruffalo turns out great mm-hmm. because basically he just shows up and does the straight up i'm in a cop movie you know thing. yeah he really you know, does this is who i am robert Downey jr shows up and does the i'm charming and i'm robert Downey jr and oh next year i'm gonna be iron Man. <laughs> that's what he does you know i just get out of prison i've been in uh I, i've been addicted to heroin for a few years like that's i mean that's what he does you know like this is just that era of robert Downey jr this is before he was iron man that's fine. Jake Gyllenhaal is kind of left out to dry, and I, I feel like he's all over the map performance-wise. Like I don't buy him in the in the least. Uh, but Chloe Sevigny, like she's great because like ultimately her thing is I need to be the boring woman who's going to uh, be a drag on our lead, which is my husband in this film. But also she kind of does a great performance of I'm going to make this person look really reasonable, whereas. I look at it and go, yeah, Graysmith is totally out to lunch. Go fuck yourself, Graysmith. I'm totally on her side. But the film's structure requires me not to be on her side. So in a way, the fact that her performance is brilliant actually makes me not like the film, right? Because ultimately, she's great. She's reasonable. Graysmith is stupid. And uh, Hall is not the best. He's eye candy, though. And so, so. yeah. <laughs> He, I mean, Jalen Jalen Hall is great. I mean, although you know, if you're asking me which of the well, two, I mean, here's Maggie, what I'm going to make a know? statement. You got John Carroll Lynch, hands down, the best performer in the whole film. I would, yeah, I'm, I, I'm can, I can, I could agree with I'm, that on any given day, honestly. He, he's also probably the best performer in Fargo, which is a much better film. <laughs> Let me make you some eggs, and bacon, honey. I'll make you some eggs, Marge. Yeah. What about Anthony Edwards? This go- this goes back oh. to my love of the fact that this is like a straight-up police procedural, and it's such a true-to-life procedural. Anthony Edwards, I think, portrays a, a straight-laced cop to a T, where the fact that he can't get anything on the Zodiac kind of destroys him to the point where he's like, I gotta, I gotta leave yeah. this, and I have to... 
I have to go to something else. I have to move. And I really enjoyed that. I love Anthony Edwards as the, like, just day-to-day working, I'm a cop, this is what I do, I am investigating these murders, I am doing my job, I am dealing with all the bullshit where Tashi is the Mm -hmm. celebrity, I'm the guy, like, actually taking notes all the time. I love Anthony Edwards in the film. He's, I love Anthony Edwards in general, ever since Revenge of the Nerds. By the way, this is now, we've done two Anthony Edwards films and no Tom Cruise films, which I also think... (laughs) Is something that's why, that's why I listen to the show. So. To never do a Tom Cruise film, I feel like our last episode we're gonna do Risky Business and uh, uh, yeah, Catch yeah. I, I gotta tell you, Risky Business is still a pretty fun watch. I mean, it was before Cruise. Oh, no, 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 actually, I actually quite like Tom Cruise and in, in a lot of stuff, but I'm kind of that's my go to joke is we've never done a Tom Cruise movie, but then we've done like, several list, uh, you know. B-list yeah. actor, yeah, movie. You know that's how I describe this podcast to people. Um, <laughs> and by the way, I'm on my second ten plus percent Woo! beer Woo! on this percent in. Yes, yeah. But uh, I am. Do, I do am. we want to wrap up there, gentlemen? Do we want to like give our sort of final thoughts on this film before we uh, move on? Sure. I, I'm I'm fine. I'm fine with whatever. I mean, I can sit here and bullshit with you guys <laughs> forever. This is, a, this is a lot of fun. I've completely lost any sense of structure. If you wanna, if you wanna wrap up the official episode, I'm fine with that. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, well, uh, we'll sort of wind down a little bit, and uh, I'll throw over to you, Mike. Well, what are your sort of like last thoughts on this film? Well, so despite what you think of the the book and Gray Smith's findings in the book, whether they're accurate or not, this film is built off of that book, which would lead you to believe there'd be some inaccuracies. In the film, and there are. Come on, this isn't a perfect movie. But I also think, and I've said this before, that this is probably the most accurate film you're going to get covering this particular topic. We'll never find out who the Zodiac Killer is. It's that simple. And, you know, two and a half hours, this thing goes by pretty quick. It's just filled with great performances in the film. So that's really all I have to say. I think we've, we've kind of said way too much at this point anyway. Right on. Uh, Daniel, anything else you need to add? I'm kind of on board with I mean, I, I think there's more we could kind of dig into uh, detail-wise. You know, I'm always like, I want to focus on stuff and like like dig out. Yeah. Any 10 minutes of this film we could we could kind of talk about for 90 minutes if, if we really wanted to. But ultimately, I'm glad that I kind of revisited this and kind of did my little dive on the Zodiac Killer websites and uh, maybe, oh, by the way, if Jack Graham's Patreon gets to $100 a month, he and I are going to record on the Zodiac books. So everybody go, like we we guaranteed that on that episode. So um, everybody go, if Jack Graham gets enough money, then you can listen to us talk about the books. You know, so I'll just add, I'll just throw that in right now. It's hard because I have like deep issues with the way that it presents the actual history and the way that it presents itself as a docudrama, as a sort of like straight up retelling of these stories and then like manipulates facts and some what I think are really dishonest ways. But I think as a film, I think it it still kind of fails for me because ultimately I kind of leave the film and I go, I don't know what this film is trying to say. I feel like I I leave the film and go. It's trying to be a docudrama, and it's trying to be a portrait of obsession, and it just kind of ends with uh, this kind of inconclusive ending. And ambiguity is good, but I don't feel like there's like a clear through line. I feel like it's we're going to tell the story, but not in a way that there'll there'll never be a a through line. Period. Well, well, a through line is a narrative and not history based. You know, so so I I, I really love. But, but how but how can you have a through line when 
the history doesn't have a conclusion. Well, through line when the history doesn't have a conclusion is what I'm saying. You could leave us as a you know as a as a moviegoer. You could leave us with this thought that Graysmith completely lost his mind writing this book. For instance, oh, okay, that that makes sense because that's not where we're led to believe that Arthur Lee Allen is the Zodiac killer, and that's yeah. not true. right. Right. Okay. And, 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 but but we could we could leave this with Robert Graysmith thinks. I mean, think about one hour photo. Uh, the Robin Williams film from Mark Romanek from 2002. If you've seen that film, I probably I don't really remember. <laughs> so serial killer, right? That's just worked at a yeah. He, well, like he's he's a he's a guy who uh, gets obsessed with the family and starts fixating on them, and he has like the big photo wall, and it's sort of I mean it's it's one of those like Robin Williams performances, mm-hmm. and people will say, yeah, Robin Williams is a great actor. A plus, go go for it. But it ends with because the whole thing is he's being investigated by uh, uh, detectives. It ends with uh, like, oh, he has a bunch of photos and he lays them on a desk, and then it ends in this very ambiguous fashion in terms of what does this guy really want? And I feel like if the filmmakers had been willing to say, Grace Smith is out to lunch, he doesn't, he he's complete, he's completely manipulating facts and all that sort of thing. But that means that they have to present that in a way that is giving the facts in a in a more balanced way, right? Yeah. So I, I feel like you can make Grace Smith the lead character. You could, and I, and I feel like honestly, Dylan Hall would have been great at presenting this version of Grace Smith. I feel like he's kind of left hanging trying to make Grace Smith the lead character and the hero. But really, in the end, the film should not agree with Grace Smith, not because not. Not necessarily because Gray Smith is wrong, but because Gray Smith is manipulating facts. You don't have to convince me of that. I agree with you. Yeah. Oh, I'm not trying to convince you. I'm just trying right. to. Uh, a, I'm drunk at this point because I'm <laughs> on my second 750 milliliter beer, and I was. I'm really. I'm really far gone. But I, I feel like there is a better version of this, and maybe in another 10 or 20 years, after everyone is dead, we get the the real obsession version. You know. Yeah. Um, where it really is, it just starts with, and then Grace Smith finds the data, and he's like, you know, look at the, look at the, you know, he's drawing like crazy maps on the thing, and it's like a beautiful mind, but with Zodiac killer. <laughs> I, I, Although a beautiful mind is a terrible. Yeah, movie, I, I wouldn't you know, equate so. it to that. I think this movie works pretty well. I do think there are some pretty massive shortcomings here and there, and I think Daniel outlined them quite a bit, but they're not enough for me to condemn this movie. I just personally fall upon, again, that this is one of the greatest police procedurals ever put to film, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I, I And that 15 minutes, I actually love. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I fall into it like this. this is how cops actually work. And they don't always get conclusions. They don't. They don't always get things tied up in neat packages for them. And I think this movie presents that to a pretty fair degree. Uh, it it does have the problem of trying to condemn Arthur Lee Allen, which is unfortunate. But I don't think they necessarily go as hardcore as say Gray Smith actually does in his book as far from what i can tell from reading and i think overall the performances are great the film itself technically is goddamn perfect uh yeah it's beautifully shot and you know i love how they had a a yellow hue to Mm -hmm. sort of age the film although if you watch dirty harry there's no yellow hue but you know that's the thing that they went through in the mid 2000s to sort of pretend you were watching a grindhouse film so yeah and 
I don't know if they necessarily go too hardcore trying to make it period. Like, it, it feels so semi-period, but it's not too hardcore. And, I mean, if you look at the streets in Zodiac, they're pretty goddamn clean compared to how the streets look in Dirty Harry, where it's... Yeah, fucking... well, growing up near San Francisco, I can get, tell you that the streets are fucking filthy in San Francisco <laughs> in the 70s. So. Yeah, but uh, overall, I do like this movie a lot, and I do appreciate its uh, crime procedural aspects. Like you, Mike, I think it's probably as close as we're going to get to uh, a, sort of a factual recreation of the Zodiac murders. And the- yeah, I mean, at least until some new evidence pops up that tells us who the killer is. So let's say you guys are a guest on my podcast. We rate these films from A to F. Daniel, what would you give this film? C plus. What about you, Lee? I would go about A minus, honestly. Wow, that's really good. I'd say I'd say a B plus myself. Okay. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me today. <laughs> <laughs> I I love it. I love having other podcasters on the show because all all of us who have podcasts always uh, have our own like rhythm. And it's it's always great to uh, to experience that that moment of like I want somebody else. Well, I hope I hope so. you guys can return the favor. I, uh, Daniel, you were off doing your synopsis when Lee and I were speaking before we hit record. Uh, I'd like to have you guys on my show, and we will retread the Zodiac movie of 1971, which won't be a retread because I know you've never seen it, and it's a piece of shit, something weird video <laughs> title. So it'll be an altogether different discussion. So yeah. I hope you guys. Uh, I tried to search that after you after you posted that. I tried to uh, search it on the uh, torrent sites and uh, couldn't find a, a copy no, of it. It's so, pretty uh, rare, and it, I know that um, Afka is currently scanning a 4K of that onto Blu-ray, so it's going to be out soon. If you're inviting me on BBNBC, I will totally show up. That's I'm inviting both of you actually, so we'll make that happen in the future. Yeah, budget for this was 65 million. Apparently, it uh, overall grossed 84.8. And there's some speculation of whether that was a profit or not, because, uh, of course, advertising and all that shit thrown on top of it. So uh, who knows if they actually made a profit on this? I should mention also uh, David Shire did the score for this, which is excellent. And you might know David Shire from The Conversation and all the President's Men. Like, he's this classic 70s, like, did all our, like, great 70s fucking films as far as scores go. Yeah, it's got a great score, and it's got some great tunes from the 70s and late 60s as well. Uh, DVD, Blu-ray info, Paramount uh, released a two-disc director's cut in 2008. That's the one I own on DVD. And there's also uh, two Blu-ray releases. There's, As far as I know, there's the uh, 2009 from Paramount, and there's a 2014 from Warner Brothers. And I think you own the uh, 2009 uh, Blu-ray, don't you, Mike? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's great. You know, it's funny. I was, um, I had a 4k setup. All right. But I don't really watch shit in 4k. But yesterday I took the time to dissect my TV and switch everything to 4k. Mm-hmm. Not much of a difference. So honestly, it's, it's, I don't even know if it's <laughs> worth it. I don't even know if it's worth it. Cause I was playing, um, uh, the last of us on the PS4. I got a, a PS4 pro and I this should look better. So yeah, it doesn't look a whole lot better to be honest with you. But the, uh, the Blu-ray of this does look quite outstanding nice nice all right i think we can end off uh mike please tell us where people can find you on the interwebs i'll keep it super short just go to bbnbcpodcast.com awesome and i i totally recommend anyone who has 
who has been listening to this podcast and have not been listening to Badass's boobs and body counts, you should be because they are the best at what they do. So, and, and I know I touched down on uh, Barbara Jane uh, Mackle re- a couple times during this episode. She's sort of a, a through line in uh, Dirty Harry. We did do the Candy Snatchers a few weeks ago, and that sort of depicts or covers her story in a very, right. very low-budget way. So. <laughs> yeah, check out their stuff. Uh, Daniel, where can people find you? Yeah, you cannot find me on the BBNBC uh, website uh, as of yet, but possibly in the not future. Yet. <laughs> um, no, you can find me. Uh, just find me on Twitter at Daniel Lee Harper. All my stuff goes up there. Also, Lee will surely put this out there, but uh, Jack Graham, who's a former podcast guest, and I did a Wrong with Authority footnote, which we call that's a podcast where we do movies about history and then the history that those movies are about. We talked about the Zodiac killing to extensive detail. Um, yeah, it's like a two uh, two and a half hour footnote. Isn't it? It's it's a two hour and forty minute footnote, which tells you we did we did like f- almost six hours about. Uh, so you're balls. through with the Zodiac Killer, is what you're saying? I am. I am so done talking about the Zodiac <laughs> Killer. Yeah, no, uh, we had we had a great conversation, and I'm actually really proud of how that episode came out because it's actually a really kind of fun, uh, kind of cheesy listen, despite the fact that it's very long. But it, but it's really just Jack and I like bullshitting for uh, long stretches, and uh, I would recommend everybody go listen to that. And um, you know, I'm actually mostly sober for that so yeah go check yeah no it's good i i will link it in the show notes and of course you can go to tmbdos.podbean.com and find all of our links to well it's not itunes oh, anymore it's, oh oh and mike murphy is name checked in that episode that's right he is he is because he hates people talking about the Marvel movies. It's <laughs> oh, no, the let's, let's, let's clear that. Podcasts. I, I love, I love fucking Marvel movies. <laughs> he complained. Mike Murphy complained about us talking about. No, Marvel just movies. briefly, I said at any point in this podcast, so you can stop talking about Marvel movies. <laughs> <laughs> so we actually name check Mike Murphy at the beginning because the first about thirteen minutes are Jack Graham and I talking about Iron Man. I, and so, I do rather enjoy the Iron Man series, I have to say. So I'm not without my fault, is basically what I'm trying, trying to say here. But as I was saying, tmbdos.poddb.com. Go there. Find our shit. And uh, Mike Murphy, it was an absolute pleasure having you, sir. I appreciate the – well, I, I'm not going to say you offered me. <laughs> I said, hey, I want to be on this episode. So thank you very much. It's been an honor. We submitted and capitulated, and it was a fun time, and we'll definitely have you back at some time, and uh, we hope to join you at some time on your podcast. Yep, be definitely make fun. that happen. Well, Daniel, I know you're tired of the Zodiac, but we'll talk about an altogether different I, monster in the 1971 version of the yeah, Zodiac. Yeah, you won't have to worry about your Zodiac knowledge for that film. Nor you. will you have to worry about actual true facts. <laughs> <laughs> so so basically you're saying like don't research anything no no in fact drink 20 percent alcohol before you start your your computer up and because it's it's a movie that bases nothing in reality whatsoever it's completely exploitative and god love it oh, the problem that i run into with that sort of thing is like if it's boring enough i just fall asleep halfway through well, you may... and then have to re-watch it three times to get through it and uh, it's well in our show you can say sorry um I didn't. I fell asleep halfway through. You guys have to continue the discussion without me. So, <laughs> yeah. But uh, we'll we'll close up now, and uh, we're going to be coming back next episode with 
Jackie Brown, and then after that, we're going to be hitting episode 100, which will so be... I'm, I'm super excited about Jackie Brown, you guys. One of my all-time favorite... What's his name? Oh, Quentin Tarantino movies. Yeah, and one you covered on your podcast. Yeah, long ago, we even interviewed Quentin Tarantino for that, so if you're listening... Yeah, wanna, it, was, it was an next hear, interview. Yeah, oh. If you want to hear an exclusive interview with Quentin Tarantino, which he just doesn't do very often, we have him on the show. Um, episode 100, Night of the Living Dead commentary. Are you guys going to be taking like MP3s for that? Because I want to send you a little something. Yes. You, okay. You, if you want to send an MP3, we'll, we'll stick it in there. I'll put that together for you then. Awesome. And uh, so, everyone, thank you for listening. And all I have to say to you now is goodbye.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For past episodes and links to our iTunes, YouTube, and Facebook group, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find links to other podcasts and websites of similar interest. If you subscribe to us on iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star rating and a review. Please join our Facebook group as it's the single best place to get in contact with the hosts and to know what's coming up on the podcast. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>